<laughs> the Rogue Scientist Productions presents Pursuing Your Passions as a Bitch. Thank you, and welcome to Pursuing Your Passions as a Bitch. I am your host, Charles Dockham, the owner of the Rogue Scientist Productions and the author of The World Beyond, an ongoing story on Kindle Vela. With me, I have my guest, Jim and Busty, the uh, podcaster and host of The World Turned Upside Down. Jim? Charles, thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. Great. And I... I'm really happy and excited to have you on our show today. Uh, one thing that I saw and was very interested in is based on your podcast details and my obsession of my fiance when it comes to the story of Outlander and the history revolving around the Revolutionary War and the Scottish people's migration towards the Northeast. Um, so we're, we're very excited to kind of get your de- get some information about your process and everything when it comes to being a historian and being very accurate in terms of flushing out the time period and making sure you're accurate in your deductions on everything that kind of happens. Yeah, that sounds great. Happy to talk about all of that. Perfect. Um, so the first thing I wanted to ask, so what got you into being a historian in the first place? It's a, it's a fun question. And originally in a former life, I wanted to be an aerospace engineer. Uh, my, my grandfather worked for Wright-Pedison Air Force Base in Dayton, Ohio. And so I grew up around the Air Force Museum and airplanes, and he developed and worked on numerous um, fighters and bombers in his time. And so I wanted to be an aerospace engineer. Uh, one of the key things that you need to be able to do as an aerospace engineer is you need to be able to do math. Uh, I cannot do math very well. And so if you don't do math well, as an aerospace engineer, uh, planes might fall out of the sky. Unfortunately, though, I had a, a passion for history early on, particularly American history. And uh, when I graduated from uh, high school, I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to major in in college. And, and I settled on political science and history. Still wasn't sure what I wanted my career to be, but eventually uh, I ended up becoming a historian uh, after doing a master's degree at my alma mater at Miami University in Ohio. And then I did a PhD at the University of Virginia uh, down here in Charlottesville, Virginia. Oh, perfect. And that's actually one thing I always remember from school is uh, when they say that if you're not good at math or science, you're always good at English or history. Like those two different sides of the brain are kind of connected. <laughs> um, yeah, so, evidently that was true for me. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so one thing that I, I kind of wanted to ask. So um, one thing that you, you, you've you mentioned in the past that you specialize in is the Scottish migration of the people coming from um, Scotland to the Northeast and the Revolutionary War. So what kind of really kind of drew you to that, that kind of um, time frame in history? 
I was drawn to early American history first. I was always very interested in the founding generation as a kid, and especially in college. And uh, I grew up at a time right around when David McCullough published John Adams, which is a marvelous work in many ways, but it was really inspirational for a lot of people to get into history or to take history more seriously. Uh, and for me to for me to contemplate uh, studying history and pursuing it as a career. And so I always, always had that kind of background in early American history, the era of the American Revolution, really interested in why American colonists choose to break from Britain in the 18th century when things seemed more or less to be going their way. You know, what choices do they have to make? How did that affect indigenous populations or enslaved people? Trying to come to terms with the revolution and the war that creates the United States in the late 18th century. The Scotland connection was in a sense by accident. Uh, my wife happens to be a historian as well. She studies the Tudor period of England. So Henry VIII, Elizabeth I, those sorts of folks. And she was a few years ahead of me in her PhD program. And I went with her uh, one winter uh, on her first major research trip. And we took a side trip to Edinburgh in Scotland. And when we toured the castle, and if you've ever been to Edinburgh, the castle is on the remains of an ancient volcano. It's very prominent, and you can see it from all around the city. And in the castle, they interpret the dungeon as it was during the American War for Independence, when some American sailors were captured and held there as prisoners of war. And on the wooden door to the dungeon, you can see in scroll that one of the prisoners had drawn an early stars and stripes. And I was kind of hooked. Originally, I, I thought I would do a project about those sailors, trying to understand what their lives were like, who they were. And there wasn't a whole lot of archival evidence I could find. But through the process of looking around for archival evidence for that project, I came across all these stories about Scots migrating to the colonies in the second half of the 18th century. And of Scots in the colonies encouraging their friends and families back home to come over. And equally importantly, I found documents of politicians and jurists and other people in Scotland and Britain uh, as a whole arguing that immigration to the colonies in this particular moment, uh, in the 1760s when the first stirrings of trouble between Great Britain and the colonies emerged, that the immigration of people from Scotland would somehow deprive Scotland and thus Great Britain of labor resources and of potential military resources, all to the colony's benefit. And so I wanted to understand why people were leaving, what their motivations were, where they were going, and as importantly, understanding why people thought that they might need to try to stop them. And that's set me on my journey to my dissertation, which looks at uh, Scottish immigration from uh, from Scotland to the colonies as a kind of political and and an imperial crisis that is uh, alongside the story that we all know about the Stamp Act and the Tea Party and the Boston Massacre, all taking place at the same time, but all part of a larger transformation of the British Empire in the 18th century that produces a revolution and eventually a war for independence. 
Yeah. And wow, that's actually really interesting in terms of just Scotland in general, just trying to like just undermine the British parliament in general. But you can kind of see that because, and I I apologize if my knowledge on this is a little off, um, just because it's, it's my knowledge on it's more based off of what I've kind of seen published in, in different ways, but it it wasn't that long ago before the revolutionary war that Scotland had the battle of Culloden, correct? Mm-hmm. That's absolutely right. So, uh, 1745, 1746 is the last Jacobite uprising. And the, the Jacobite uprising, as your, some of your listeners may know, was the last major attempt by Scots and, and some Englishmen who were loyal to the House of Stuart to try to depose King George II, uh, so, so King George III's grandfather, tried to depose King George II and put a Stuart monarch back on the throne. Uh, they, the Stuarts had been deposed, or at least James II had been deposed uh, in the late 17th century, uh, and through various processes, and the last legitimate Stuart monarch had died uh, in Queen Anne in the early 18th century. And uh, the uh, throne passed to the House of Hanover, so George I, II, and III. The Scots, some Scots in 1745, largely concentrated in the Western Highlands and Islands, with some allies in England and with the support of the French, attempt to uh, take back the throne and install the rightful king in its place. So you're right. It's kind of interesting and ironic that, uh, you know, 20 years before the troubles begin between Great Britain and the colonies, there is a major rebellion in Great Britain itself that the British army has to put down, and they do successfully and quite brutally at the Battle of Culloden. Uh, And then, you know, interestingly enough and ironically enough, in some ways, a lot of these Scots who were rebels in that period, quote-unquote rebels, uh, in the Jacobite uprising, later stay loyal to the crown, either through military service or through uh, after they immigrate to the colonies in North America uh, in the 1760s. And so you've got this kind of weird, um, interesting series of events that seem to sort of all exist alongside of each other, are informing each other, and are shaping the choices that the people that, that I'm particularly interested in are making uh, in the era of the American Revolution. No, that that is really interesting. And then to find out that a lot of the people who were originally part of the Jacobite, Jacobite Rebellion stayed loyal towards the crown d- during the Revolutionary War, that's that's a little shocking in my mind because you would think that the last thing in their mind would be to stay loyal to <laughs> case, it yeah. would be yeah. to aid the rebellion. Yeah, no, that's that's wow. Okay, um, but so how do you kind of flush out these kind of stories during that? time and where do you kind of find the information about all this we'll be back after a quick break hello this is charles doc i'm the owner of the road scientist productions and host of pursuing your passions as a bitch i'm proud to announce that my novel the world beyond will be available august 29th pre-orders available now on your book platform of choice link in the description below Everything that we do as professional historians starts with a question. And it, it, that question is prompted by something another historian has written, 
uh, prompted by the interpretation that they have made, or it is prompted by something that we see in the archives. So in my case, when I'm studying the Scots immigrants, a lot of what historians had written in the 1980s and 1990s had really been a, uh, what we call social history. So the history of regular people and looking at their lives and trying to understand some of the motivations for why they immigrated, what their lives were like in Scotland at the time of their immigration, and where they went in North America. What I thought was missing was how that immigration factored into, was shaped by, or in turn shaped, the broader, what we call the imperial crisis that erupts between Great Britain and the colonies. And I also wanted to understand how this immigration was a product of both the transformation of Scotland in the 18th century and of Great Britain itself and the empire at large. Uh, and so that, that led me to thinking about uh, what Scottish historians in particular had written about the collapse of the Highland clan system by late, the late 18th century. So you mentioned Outlander, right? Uh, if there's anything that people know about Scotland, it's whiskey, it's bagpipes, it's probably a hairy coup, but also the clan, you know, particularly those of the older generation who watched Highlander. Um, but by the 18th century, that clan system is collapsing. And the clan, just very briefly, is a kind of reciprocal relationship between a chief and his people. Uh, in the old feudal days, that would be the chief agrees to provide protection for his people in exchange for military service. But by the 18th century, that relationship had changed fundamentally. So now that was much more economic. It was much more in the sense that the chief was a landlord, his people were his tenants, uh, and they owed him rent in the form of mm -hmm. agricultural products each year. As that clan system, that traditional clan system is collapsing, there's other economic factors that dislodge people from the landscape. The, the rents get too high, uh, in part because the, the chiefs themselves have gone into serious debt, so they need to jack up rents and things like that. Um, the, that clan system is coming apart, and at the same time, there's a critical moment that occurs in North America, particularly in 1763, at the end of what we call the Seven Years' War, what we more commonly call in North America the French and Indian War, where the French are finally defeated. Everyone is excited about the empire. There, there's this euphoria that the future is the British future and that North America is a key part of it. And there's a ton of land. Uh, you know, often at the expense of indigenous people, to be sure, but there is land to be held. And a lot of Scots start looking at this in the 1760s, saying our traditional life is falling apart. Uh, we don't want to be tenants. We want to own our own land. And in America, we, we can do that. So a lot of that had been covered, uh, and I added a, a little bit to it. But what really struck me was... What, what I thought was missing from the literature, from the scholarly conversation in the, in the books and articles that we write, was the question of how people attempted to resist this immigration, uh, particularly as this imperial crisis heats up and the war for independence breaks out. Because as I said earlier, there's this fear that immigration will deprive Scotland and thus Britain of economic and military resources. So what I wanted to understand, and the question I asked was, was how did leading politicians and jurists attempt to essentially circumna or circumnavigate, circumvent the British constitution and stop people from leaving? 
Um, how do they try to convince people that it was not in their interest to go? And how did they do so in a ways that they thought was going to benefit Britain and the empire? Um, because there's a major constitutional question, right? If, if you think about it today, you know, I'm in Virginia right now. If I wanted to go to West Virginia or any other state, there's no law that can prevent me from going to any state that I want um, mm. because we live in the same country, although we live in different states. Same thing applies in the 18th century. How can you stop a, a subject of the king from going to one of his dominions uh, to another? And that's the kind of big crisis or, or political and legal question that some of my figures are facing and how the clever ways in which they try to uh, get around constitutional restrictions or constitutional prohibitions on, on trying to do something like that. Um, so it's, it starts with that question. It starts with what can I add that's new to the conversation? And then you have to go to find the evidence. You have to go into the archives. And in my case, uh, I did research in one, two, three, at least three countries, maybe four. I'm sort of forgetting right now. It's been a while. Um, but, but primarily in Scotland, at the National Records of Scotland, at the National Ri Library of Scotland, reading through the correspondence of some of these politicians and jurists, reading through the correspondence of estate managers, looking at passenger manifests of the immigrants uh, who are on these ships going over. And then in this country, in, in the United States, going to North Carolina and Vermont and New York and finding archival evidence of what their lives were like and how they were trying to entice their friends and family to come over. Uh, and so you're, you're, the, the choices you make as a historian are shaped by what came before, what your colleagues did before. You're building off the foundation of their work. Uh, but then you're going into the archives, reading the evidence in a new light, hopefully finding new evidence, which is even better, and trying to make sense of the world uh, that your actors saw it, and hopefully trying to render as accurate a portrait as you can. Mm -hmm. No, that's that's actually a pretty interesting thing just because like you said you're building on the work of everybody else that kind of really kind of came before you and um it be like i've mentioned in the past or mentioned before your work then gets translated into um fictional work where historical fiction becomes huge uh, i mentioned outlander but outlander is huge in trying to make sure that they're historically accurate whether or not it's their architecture in the show the clothing that they're wearing is correct everything that they're wearing is correct but then they take that information from the work you do and from the work in terms of um, like you said, people moving from one country to another, making sure all that information is correct. And it's, it's, it just looking at it as a whole, it's an amazing just engine of information. And, and then that gets translated to me where I knew about the battle of Culloden because of outlander, which was because of the work of a historian that came before that. And it's just getting that kind of knowledge and getting all that information being translated through and stuff like that is, it's relatively amazing. Well, I like the way you framed it because there are some folks who would complain if something wasn't historically accurate. I mean, it's, it's one thing if you're producing a documentary and you have an obligation to be accurate, but if you are producing a work of fiction, particularly historical fiction, like I'm, I'm less concerned if you take some licenses because inevitably 
something like you just described will happen. Uh, you become interested in it. You become interested in the history of, say, the Battle of Culloden, and you'll have a desire to go out and learn more. And so in a lot of ways, historical fiction is is a great marketing for us historians. Uh, it, you know, For example, when the movie 300 came out, oh, what, 15 years ago about the Battle of Thermopylae, it was a great marketing tool for ancient history classes at universities because suddenly everybody wanted to know about Spartan life. They wanted to know about the Persian invasion. They wanted to know about ancient Greek hoplite warfare. Um, mm-hmm. The same thing happens, you know, with with American Revolution stuff with Turn or or with Outlander because that you know that does factor in, uh, and particularly with my work with Scottish American history. So it's it's great, uh, you know, if it inspires people to learn more about the past, understanding that what they're watching is a work of fiction, but they can go learn the the basis of that fiction then let's do it you know it's the more people learn about the past uh, the better exactly and that's actually something my fiance immediately picks up when she gets interested in something is that she'll i've watched her actively watching a show and then immediately going on her phone and researching every bit that goes into the research in terms of the characters, the history of the show, everything about it. She's reading articles on it. And so when it comes to Outlander, that it's just been a, a blossoming effect that got her into Scottish culture, Scottish history, um, where, where the entire Jacobite rebellion happened, the Revolutionary War, and just how it inspires people is, is, Great. Have you ever had any authors or um, anybody in the entertainment industry reach out to you to make sure that they are doing anything correctly? Uh, not as of sorts in terms of historical fiction. I've been very fortunate to be on a couple of BBC documentaries, one about George III and one about a ship called the Hector, which sailed to Nova Scotia in 1773. But uh, I am not aware of anyone who has used any of my work to do a, a, a fictional piece. But if anyone's listening out there, I would love to consult. That sounds like a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um no, I'll definitely, if anybody is writing any um, stories about fiction in that time frame, I'll definitely make sure to keep uh, you updated and make sure to pass on any information in terms of making it just getting that correct information through. Um, so I know we're kind of coming t- towards the end of our podcast right now. Is there anything that you might suggest to my listeners who are who are kind of interested in these subjects? Yeah, there's a few books I, I could recommend. Uh, I'll, I'll say the, the, uh, the historian James Hunter is very good generally on a lot of aspects of, of uh, Scottish immigration in the late 18th and 19th century. So any of his books. Uh, my colleague who's at the United States Naval Academy, Matthew DeSheik, he has written a really wonderful book about uh, the Highland soldier in North America during the Seven Years' War and the American Revolution. That's out from Yale University Press. But uh, one of the things I would I would urge your listeners to consider, particularly with Scottish history or Scottish American history, and, and the period we've been talking about, is the significance of poetry to Scottish culture, uh, both in terms of Gaelic culture, Gaelic speaking poets and also English poets. And so uh, there is a a scholar named Daniel Cook who has just released a really wonderful collection of poems. Uh, I think it's uh, out by Oxford University Press. 
Um, and then the title of the, the book escapes me right now. But I, uh, I try to use poetry a lot in my work because I think it oftentimes captures the sentiment of the of, of people and places at the time, and particularly with Scotland, because poetry is such a, an integral part of Scottish culture. It's really an important lens into what's happening in Scottish society. So for for your fiance who's watching Outlander, or who anyone's interested in Scotland in general, poetry and and I'm talking poetry beyond Sir Walter Scott, beyond Robert Burns, but poetry uh, is a really wonderful way. Uh, not only to learn about Scotland and its past, but also, you know, quite frankly, to spend a rainy day with a glass of whiskey and reading some great stuff. Exactly. Uh, well, since we're kind of coming to our end, thank you so much for everything and thank you for being on our show. Are there any social media platforms, any projects that we're, you're working on, um, any websites that you'd like my listeners to be able to follow you on? Yeah, that'd be great. Thanks for the opportunity. I, I would say, as you mentioned at the top of our conversation, I am currently in the process of researching and writing a narrative history podcast of the American Revolution called Worlds Turned Upside Down. That will be out this August 2023 from R2 Studios. And, and R2 Studios is where I work. We are a podcast outfit at George Mason University. Uh, part of our charge is to democratize history through podcasting. So you can go check out r2studios.org where you'll find information about our upcoming show, Worlds Turned Upside Down but we also have shows for listeners who are interested in the history of the Appalachian Trail. Uh, it's called The Green Tunnel. We also have a podcast on early American diplomacy called Consolation Prize and we are beginning production actually tomorrow on a new project on the history of American anti-Semitism which will be out sometime next year. So I'd love it if folks would go check out R2 Studios Productions. Uh, and then generally, you can find me on Twitter at uh, James P. Ambusky. Uh, I'm also on uh, Mastodon Social under Jim Ambusky. And uh, my website is jamespmbusky.com. So you can learn what I'm up to, what, what I'm up to with my colleagues at George Mason University and, and some of the things I've done in the past and will do in the future. Perfect. Thank you. And as for me, uh, you will be able to find us at the website, theroadscientistproductions.com, where we have our merchandise and links to my story on Pindlevella, The World Beyond. You also have all of our road scientists, social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr. The best way to support us is to like our podcast on your favorite podcast platform of choice and let others know how much you've enjoyed our show. We want to thank you, Jim, for being on our guest today and thank all of our listeners for joining us as well. This has been our podcast to all those out there looking to start a new career in the arts such as acting writing music comedy and more always remember pursuing your passions is a bitch but it's worth it